everyone. Welcome back to the We Are podcast. Um, today we have a very special guest with us. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yes. Yes, I'm Eileen McCarran, and I'm the president of Colorado Ceasefire's Legislative Action Branch. And um, I just some basic biography. I grew up in Florida. Um, and in my career, I was a computer programmer and a geophysicist for 18 years with Amico and then uh, taught school for about 10 years at math, uh, high school and college, community college. And now I'm retired. Oh, wow. wow. Okay, that's really cool. Can you tell us a little bit about Colorado Ceasefire, about the organization and also your role within it? Um, so just to give a little bit of evolution, I started working on gun violence prevention back in 1995 when mm-hmm. I was living in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the um, George W. Bush, who later became president of the United States, was elected uh, governor of the state. And he had said he was going to um, enact concealed carry law. And I was upset about that. And got involved working to try to stop it, which was not going to happen in, in Texas. And it didn't happen here in Colorado when we tried to stop it back in 2003. But um, then my husband and I moved to uh, Colorado in 1999. And it was four months after the Columbine um, massacre. And so people were quite active on the issue here in the state, and I joined in with them. And ceasefire came into being because of the legislature's failure to enact a law to close the gun show loophole. Mm-hmm. And Safe Colorado, which was a big group, which I was a member of and was working with them, they ran an initiative to close the gun show loophole. And it won by 70%, but some of us were feeling like you need to take care of those legislators who killed the bill. We need to remove them. And so we we formed what is called a PAC, a political action committee, Mm -hmm. that can go out and campaign for candidates and donate money for them. And um, so we got active that way. And there were about six races that we worked heavily on that changed hands. And so we were like, wow, we we can't stop now. So then we... Um, added an advocacy branch to the organization and then we've been working at the Capitol ever since. There's In 2016, we added an education and outreach branch, which I don't work that much with them. I mean, they're kind of, we, we're all part of the same organization, but I don't get involved as much with their what they're doing so and some of the questions you ask about i can't answer all the stuff that they're doing mm-hmm. um as well as somebody else could mm-hmm. okay. but we've had, in the years we've been working at the capitol we've enacted 23 gun laws um we have one bad bill that got enacted that we fought against and it's still on the books but and that's the concealed carry but that's not going to be erased um, as long as the Bruin decision holds as as the ruling for the land, which is what it's going to be for some time to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely really interesting to hear. Um, 
do you personally have any experience with gun violence? And if so, what was this experience like for you? I have, I really don't have personal, um, like a family member shot and killed or even injured. We didn't have guns in our home when I grew up, except for a rifle that my dad had um, for, he was working with the scouts and um, teaching them how to shoot. And he tried to teach me, but I've, flunked at it. I was really, really bad. <laughs> so uh, I don't, I don't have any personal experience in my family. There have been some people I, two people I sang at their weddings for. Um, later, one of the partners took their lives with a gun, but I, it, they weren't like in my life at that time. I mean, they were, it was well in the past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't have any effects from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So from all of your, like, extensive knowledge and research, what would you say is, like, the current biggest impact of gun violence in the U.S.? And, like, from your experience, how do you think our country is trending in terms of, like, that issue? Well, you know, the gun violence was really high in the early 90s. And then Bill Clinton was elected and enacted the universal background checks and also the assault weapons ban. And also a lot of it was related to the crack cocaine epidemic. And so the fatalities dropped after that and they dropped for a while and then they started going back up in the last 10 years or so. And they really spiked during the pandemic. And, um, because reasons there's just more guns out there yeah. and i personally this is my personal belief that the concealed carry is a huge part of it too because people are it normalized people having guns with them on their person at all times and then and then or many much part of the person's life and then uh then they're there when somebody gets angry or whatever I mean, I at one time was overcome with road rage. I was so angry at stuff happening in front of me. And I thought later, hmm, wonder how that'd be if I had a gun in the car. Because I was so furious. And it's it's just yeah. things that it's, a, it's, it's there. And then it's also if people are depressed, there are more guns out there in the home accessible. The, the, the suicide uh, rate has also been going up. Yeah, so just yeah. going off going of that... On. Um, what do you think are like some recent events? I know you mentioned the pandemic that have that you think like have been impactful in and um, in the battle of gun violence and also in the battle of ending gun violence. So I think that the massacres that occur, like Columbine, the Aurora Theater, the Sandy Hook, Uvalde, have a tremendous impact on changing people's minds about the whole gun issue and maybe erasing some ambivalence about it or and, and people realizing we have a serious problem here in this mm -hmm. country so it, it has changed minds in a lot of for a lot of people and, and pulled them off the fence it is also um but it's also um galvanized the opposition or the people who are strongly for gun rights but what has been i mentioned the pandemic the pandemic uh increased gun violence and i expect that the impact of the bruin decision and there's still time for that to come out 
but that we will see a rise in gun violence because of the Bruin decision. But they're going to consider it this November on the Rahimi one, uh, the Rahimi challenge. Um, and that is that under the Bruin decision, a Texas court or the Bruin opinion, a Texas court uh, ruled that a domestic violence offender had a right to own firearms. And for a woman, and it is 85% of the time, of the time, it is a woman who is a victim of gun violence. If her abuser has access to a firearm, she's five or 10 times more likely to die. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That I didn't even know that that was a decision made. So that is yeah. devastating to hear. Yeah, that was the fifth district out of Texas ruled that in the Supreme Court chose to hear that this next uh, session. And the hearing is, I think, November 27th, if I remember correctly, when they're going to hear it and debate it. I don't know how to how they're going to get out of the corner they painted themselves into with the Bruin opinion. Mm, wow. Yeah, I'm just really shocked by that because I was totally unaware that that was even happening. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yes. It is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So what are some things you would want an average person to know about gun violence, including like common misconceptions people hold about gun violence? I think I would like people to know that if you, that it is a bad idea to bring a gun into your home if you think you're going to protect your family. Bringing a gun into the home endangers your family rather than protects it. It's more likely to be used on a member of the household than it is to protect the family from an aggressor coming into the household or something like that. Um, The other thing I would like people to know that um, civilians with guns rarely ever, rarely ever stop mass shootings. So every time they're mass shootings, the gun rights advocates will say we all need to be armed. But it turns out that it rarely happens. And there have been cases, including the Aurora Theater, that we know people were, that there were people armed in that theater. And the thing is that the human response is generally not so rapid to be able to pull out the gun and and take action. But there are cases that it, I mean, there are cases where civilians did intervene, and I and I think of the Sutherland Springs, a, a man across the street heard it, and he brought his assault rifle in and and shot and killed the assailant. But he was highly trained too. Yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's definitely a good point. If mm-hmm. you're not trained in like such a high pressure circumstance, it's hard mm-hmm. to react. Yeah, you're not sure how you're actually going to react when that situation comes around. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, so how do you think that youth is impacted by gun violence in our country? And to go along with that, what institutional changes do you think would help youth against gun violence? So that's a very good question, and I wish I knew all the answers to that. I do, I do, I do think that youth are heavily impacted because they're getting the guns, and they shouldn't be able to get them. You you cannot buy a handgun until you're 21 legally. 
uh, you can't possess one, I think, to your, uh, if you're under 18. Uh, long guns, you have to be 18 to buy them. So the youth are, 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 and then it's irresponsible and criminal adults that are getting these guns to kids. And unfortunately, they're being used to kill other kids and other children. And uh, some of the changes we need are stronger. Um, we need licensing on our gun dealers so that we can be more sharply uh, observing them on to prevent straw purchases, straw purchases being that somebody goes in and buys a gun for someone else mm -hmm. who is a prohibited buyer. Um, and also to really clamp down on the ghost guns. The ghost guns are a huge mm -hmm. problem. And, and I have to say that anyone who's marketing these online, there's an unethical and immoral act going on, and they're choosing to act in that way. And, you know, the thing is, is we always hear at the legislature about law-abiding gun owners, law-abiding gun owners, law-abiding gun owners. We get we hear that refrain over and over. And I go, just how law-abiding are you if you're really ch doing a marketing scheme to get guns into the hands of prohibited buyers, partic mm -hmm. particularly you? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, we heard about um, ghost guns for the yeah. first time a couple weeks ago in another interview. And that it's just so devastating to hear that you can make these ghost guns from things from Amazon, like Amazon, um, just random websites, and you can just find these guns and assemble them on your own. And that's really scary. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that people should definitely be aware of. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, thank you but for bringing that up. We did pass a law this last, and the governor signed it on June 2nd to uh, ban the sale of ghost guns in this state and the possession mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. uh, that all parts of it don't become effective until January 1st, but some mm -hmm. are effective were effective immediately. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to hear that they're at least taking some efforts to um, reduce that option. Um, so are there any specific like legislative actions or bills that you want the public to be aware of for this upcoming legislative session? I would actually kind of say all of that is under discussion right now between mm -hmm. uh, those of us who are uh, advocating for stronger gun laws. And so I, I don't want to get people all stirred up about this happening or that happening when we don't know if it's going to come. I mean, there are major things that we, I'd like to see that we know can make a dent. And here are the biggest major, and there are a lot of minor, I should say, that kind of cut around the edges or take nibbles in a way at the big problem. But three, <clears throat> three huge things still left for us to do in Colorado um, is to uh, do an assault weapons ban, uh, to do gun dealer licensing and also gun owner licensing. We don't we don't license either of those in this in this state. They are licensed in other states. Those are big ones to get done. Whether they'll get done next year or when, who knows? Um, but there are a lot of other things we can do that still still need to be addressed. And we also need to do more money into community intervention mm -hmm. and uh, issues that are driving people to take up guns as a as a means to resolve problems. 
so there's a lot of that, and it's it's state money and getting state money into community into mm-hmm. violence intervention programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that's important to note. Um, going off of that, the Colorado Ceasefire in particular, I know they host like several different opportunities for people to learn about um, bills and also just things they do to. Um, help educate the public and one of those is their gun violence workshops we were wondering if you knew um, anything about the gun violence workshops and what they entail so the term gun violence workshops I'm thinking that you're discussing where we talk about ERPO and um, that's the extremist protection orders law that was enacted Mm -hmm. in 2019 and then um, updated this last year and also safe storage. And those are largely to be informative to people about, you know, it's not just a good idea to, to store your guns safely. It's actually the law. You have to do it. And if you, if you choose not to and things happen, you might be ending up as a facing a misdemeanor charge mm-hmm. for failure to properly store lethal weapons. Um, and the other is just educating people on the ERPO. I think that's what the workshops are largely about. And I'm not involved in, I mean, I've given tons of, I shouldn't say tons of, that's not a proper measure. <laughs> I've given mm-hmm. many talks on ERPO, mm-hmm. uh, but, but not been in like the workshops per se. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, so what are some ways that people like youth or just anyone um, within our state or within the U.S. can help with Colorado ceasefire or just in general to reduce gun violence? So one of the things is just to become knowledgeable about the problem that mm-hmm. we have in the state. A thousand and thirty three people were killed last year with firearms. I think it's six hundred and ninety of them were suicides. Um, the homicides are growing. Uh, that in this state in the last few years, and that happened with the uh, pandemic, that they surged. And just to know, you don't have to know those numbers, but know that it's a growing problem. And take that, learn about the laws, learn about what we can do, speak to friends and colleagues, ask us at Ceasefire to come give uh, talks on ERPO and safe storage. And also we have other talks we give like the history of gun laws in the state. Uh, what do you say to people who are um, unsure? How do you, it's largely how do you respond to the arguments of the pro-gun rights community? And also I'm working on one on, on the Second Amendment that eventually we'll have one a, a talk about that. Uh, so invite us to those uh, to give a talk at your at your groups, uh, community groups. Share it with your parents. Let your parents as as youth let your parents know about the current laws. Um, the other thing is just generally talk to talk to candidates running for office about your mm-hmm. concerns and vote and get your friends to vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, the other is, is as youth to use the safe to tell if you hear of students who are um, doing threatening things or uh, that they're bringing a gun to school or something that use the tools that are there and we need to replace the Supreme Court yeah I know I know is that an easy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I think mm-hmm. like the life it's a long term in your yeah. lifetimes hopefully we'll get a different Supreme Court <laughs> but they are off the rails and they haven't really 
the, the people who are doing what is called originalism, they aren't even obeying originalism because the Second Amendment clearly came into being on the whole issue of militias. Yeah. And that whole clause on the militia has been wiped out, in essence, by the Heller and the Bruin decisions. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think that's super important. It's very difficult because of the life terms. Um, but yes. <laughs> I think definitely, like you said, by advocating and writing to legislatures and legislators and different representatives in your state, you can definitely make an impact that way. Um, just to elaborate. Especially, especially for those of you who live, and I, I can't remember where you all live, but if you live in uh, more challenged I shouldn't say more challenged, more Republican districts, because yeah. unfortunately mm-hmm. it aligns totally party line. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, it's, it's in the time I've been working at the legislature, it's about this many legislators who voted with us who are Republicans. Okay. About five on, the, on that, or mm-hmm. close to that. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's definitely some, an issue that should be bipartisan. Um, and something that I think we can work towards. Um, could you elaborate on some court cases or Supreme Court cases that you think have been impactful in this journey to ending gun violence? Um, back in 1934, there was the National Firearms Act that the Supreme Court upheld, and that that prohibited uh, people, well, it didn't prohibit it, requires special licenses for silencers and machine guns. I actually have fear for that being overturned because of Bruin. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and that actually didn't view, and for the over 200 years of our country's history, the Supreme Court had never viewed uh, that owning a gun was an individual right. And the NRA began a very long-term program of convincing um, law professors, law people writing in the law journals and stuff to um, make arguments for an individual right for uh, firearms. And that was this, uh, a long program, and it has had its impact in our national uh, outlook. So that a lot of people feel like it is an individual right, but it was not held to be that way for over 200 years. And it wasn't until the Heller decision that they've struck that phrase out in in essence, the preface about in order to, I don't have the words down right at the second, but it has to do with the well-regulated militia. They just, this is necessary for the security of a free state. That really is not included in in the Heller or Bruin decisions. It's been kind of ignored. And then we just put the last phrase about the right to bear, bear keep and bear arms mm-hmm. shall not be infringed. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that is, uh, unfortunately, the Bruin decision took it a step, took, took, took Heller a step further and mm-hmm. said that a, a, a law has to have a historical analog to be constitutional. So, so the example was this uh, concealed carry law in New York that they threw out, they said, well, if there was no historical um, law like that back in early New York or early whatever colonial days, so now you can't have it. And that's why the Rahimi decision is a problem because they didn't have laws about domestic violence abusers and guns back in colonial times or early American times. 
In fact, women were pretty much chattel. So they, they, uh, having domestic violence was not even um, a serious problem that was considered legally back in. And I'm speaking of um, um, anecdotally or not anecdotally, but broadly uh, from things I've read, not as a legal expert. But that's why they've got a problem with Rahimi, because they don't have domestic violence and gun laws from back in early American times. Yeah, I think and you know what? They had musket loading, uh, muzzle loading muskets, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think precedent is the super interesting part mm-hmm. of, like, gun violence laws and prevention. Right. So it's something to keep mm-hmm. your I eye think on. the Supreme Court can be really instrumental in those decisions. And it's just interesting to see, like, how the composition of the court and just, like, their decision-making yeah. can affect, like, such a broad issue. Um, well, prior, just to finish on that thought, prior to the Bruin decision, um, the constitutionality of a law also considered community interest. And Justice uh, Thomas, I always want to say highly unethical um, Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, he 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 wiped out the uh, community interest part of the of what they used to decide on constitutionality. Oh wow, that's yeah, definitely devastating, mm-hmm. and will impact so many people. Yeah. Yes. I really appreciate you just sharing this because I think it's helping like me gain a lot of insight on that issue some things i didn't know about it yeah so yeah you wonder about the founding fathers if mm-hmm. if they how they would have felt about this being mm-hmm. interpreted this way yeah, yeah, we have assault weapons you know where they could uh-huh. not even envision something like that uh, assault yeah, right. weapons yeah the whole second amendment was based off the militia like you were saying and mm-hmm. it's being misconstrued so that's definitely mm-hmm. something that we need to think about when we're talking about these mm-hmm. issues, especially in like a more modern context with the issues that we're dealing with today. Yeah. yeah. So do you have any like recommendations for how people can protect themselves from gun violence or just any like basic rules people should be aware of given the commonality of gun violence in the U S. So, you know, for being in a public settings, um, I've heard this and I don't do it well, but when you go into a theater or something, always be looking for the exits. Yeah. Um, it also is the advice to hide, hide if you can, mm-hmm. run if you can, mm-hmm. and fight. If you can't hide or run, then you fight. Daniel, Daniel Mauser, who was Tom Mauser's son, who was killed in the Columbine mm-hmm. shooting, he actually did, uh, throw a chair at the assailants. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. save his life, but I mean, he did fight, you know, mm-hmm. to say, yeah. uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, do what you can. Unfortunately, it's human nature to freeze when frightened mm-hmm. and that's kind yeah. of an instinctive thing in our brains that we're actually programmed in our brains for our own safety mm-hmm. to freeze. But I also would suggest don't buy guns if you, you know, to protect your family. It does, it's not going to be that um, strong a protection. But if you do have them, lock them up. Keep them, keep them locked when you're not having them for out hunting or whatever you're doing, target shooting or whatever. Um, I think those are the main things to protect yourself. I think there's also common sense things, too, about um, going into dangerous areas. Mm-hmm. Um 
and being mindful of your surroundings. I'd also say this one too, don't stay out late at night. Yeah. I, see, mm-hmm. I read all the, I read of so many shootings in the gun violence archive and mm-hmm. so many of them happen from 11 till six in the morning. A lot of them. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. That was very insightful, and we want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We appreciate it. it. We learned so much. Hopefully, all of our listeners did as well, and we want to thank you for all of your efforts today. In Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. and I also would like to tell you I thought your questions were very well thought out, so thank, thank you. Thank you. I thought your answers were also incredibly insightful, and I definitely learned a lot, so yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Okay.